Deuteronomy chapter 17 concerns the pure and impure worship of God, appeals made to the Sanhedrin, and the election and duties of their king in Israel. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, inspired by his spirit and profitable for us from Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 1. Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoredness, for this is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. If there be found among you within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman, that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods, and worshipped them, either the sun or moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquire diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain, that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then shalt thou bring forth that man or that woman, which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates." even that man or that woman, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So... Thou shalt put the evil away from among you. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise and get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place, which the Lord shall choose, shall show thee. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee. Thou shalt do. Thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand nor to the left. And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God or unto the judge, even that man shall die. And thou shalt put away the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren, Shalt thou set king over thee? Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, 
nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him. And he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel." And thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. Some comments on this most instructive passage. Verses 1 through 7 concern the pure and impure worship of God. The former being commanded and the latter being punished. Verse 1 tells us bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoredness. Now these are animals God had commanded them to offer, but not of every kind among them, not the ill-favored, not the sickly, not missing a leg, not looking wrong, but those without blemish, he says. Now, this is very important because two things. One is the worshiper himself, when he says he will offer the blemished, what is he saying? God, you get the leftovers. I'll take all the best for myself, Lord, and if I have some left, I'll give it to you which breeds in the worshiper a contempt for God. He will not give God the best. He will give him what costs him nothing. David said, after Aaronah, the Jebusite, had offered him for free the place where he could offer a sacrifice when the ark came back or was there placed, David said, no. But I will surely buy it of thee at a price, neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. David would not do that. He wanted to reverence God and give him the best. He's not going to give free stuff to God, in other words. It's going to cost him something. And that's what God is saying. That's the first reason. The second is a prophetic reason. What do all these sacrifices point forward to? To the spotless Lamb of God? Without spot or blemish or any such thing? A perfect holy sacrifice upon the cross? That's what these point to. So not only were they learning to reverence God in his worship, they were learning that there would be a sacrifice that God would accept that was holy and perfect. Let us then not seek for easy offerings to God, not give God the easy, the cheap, or the leftovers, and also let us rejoice in Jesus Christ, that perfect spotless lamb. God says these cheap offerings were an abomination unto him. Why is that? Didn't God, in his providence, form that animal with a blemish? Yes, he did. He rules over all things. When a sparrow falls to the ground, when a hair drops off of my head or your head to the ground, that's part of God's providence, isn't it? Jesus said so. Yes, it is. But God said, even though this is my providence to give you this animal that isn't as good as the rest, 
You must have the proper attitude toward me. You must have an attitude of reverence and respect and prioritize me above everything else. Then we have impure worship. God talks about within the gates that he giveth them. Now this word give means a gracious gift, a testament, an act of mercy, an inheritance granted to you. These gates where you're going to live are my grant of favor and grace to you. And now he says, you're going to use the gates that I gave you for my purposes to crush those who would rebel against me, who would teach to cast off the true and living God. He calls it transgressing his covenant in verse 2. Now, transgression is where God sets up a boundary mark, and you say, I don't like that boundary mark. I'm going to leap over the hedge that you put here, Lord. No, I don't like your covenant. I'm going to step on the outside of it. I'm going to make a new way for myself. I did it my way, the man said. Not God's way, my way. That's transgressing God's covenant. God does not take this as a light thing. God's covenant of grace... His testament, where he gave them all these good things, has boundary marks, doesn't it? It has hedges. This he calls his covenant, the Ten Commandments in particular. The mercy seat contained those Ten Commandments. Think about that. God showed his mercy to the people, and he said, I will sprinkle blood for the forgiveness of your sins, and inside of that is the Ten Commandments, his law, his rules. Let us keep God's commandments out of gratitude for the Lord's free gifts. His gift of grace moves us to obey, as we'll see from Ephesians 2. Notice verse 4. If there is an accusation made against a person, there must be a diligent inquiry. Did he actually do this? Did this man or this woman actually do the things they're being accused of? A diligent legal course to be pursued. Now, sometimes Paul said to the Corinthians, I've already judged the man. I don't need to be there. If he's committing incest and living with his father's wife, I don't need to show up and hold a trial, okay? But sometimes we need to make sure, and especially in civil cases, if you're going to put a person to death, you must ensure that they're actually guilty with a diligent inquiry. Two or three witnesses, verse 6 says. Bring this one to the gates, he says. Remember those very gates that God graciously gave them. Bring that person to remind you of my inheritance and my rule over you. And then he says, stone them with stones till they die. Now, do you think that the Lord would command Israel to put someone to death over a very unimportant thing? You think he'd say, well, it's not that big of a deal, but I think it's Just for you, like you eat a shellfish. And I said, don't eat the shellfish. Put that person to death. Is that what the scriptures say? No. But when a person departs from the living God and they worship the hosts of heaven or any creature and they say, let us move away from God. I don't want to keep God's covenant. I want to do my own thing. Very serious, isn't it? Franciscus Junius said the following, He who is punishable by death under that judicial law is punishable by death still. And he who is not punishable by death then is not to be punished by death now. God took it seriously then. He takes it seriously now. And what does Paul say? Why do they have the sword of civil justice? 
to punish them that do evil, cut their head off. That's the word. It's a butcher's sword that the civil magistrate has to hack the wicked in pieces. This is still true in our day. We should not fear to hold God's attitude toward them that do evil. The sword was ordained. Did you know that the government is supposed to be a terrorist organization? God says to terrorize them that do evil, to strike terror into their hearts so that they will fear to transgress God's covenant. Is that what happens in our day? Who's who's afraid? The law-abiding citizen? Not them that do evil. So they bear the sword in vain. They are tyrants in our day. Then we have in verses 8 through 13, the appeals from inferior courts to the great Sanhedrin. This is a matter that is too hard for the lesser court. It's hidden from them. It's extraordinary. It's above and beyond their capacity. And so they ask, can you help us? They send the case up to the higher court. Then he says, thou shalt arise and get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. There would be some expertise there, presumably in this Sanhedrin, this body of elders, which we saw in Exodus 18 established. They were to go there, verse 9, to the priests and the Levites and to the judge. Okay, so not just the Levites who would teach them the law, but also to the civil judge. Remember from chapter 16, they elected these judges from among themselves, men who were qualified to the office, they would elect and make them into judges. Those judges would sit together with the priests, the Levites, and together they would formulate judgments. Why would the priests and the Levites be there? Well, how are you going to know the law? Who's going to teach you the law? Who's going to show you the statutes of God? Well, the Levites are. And the judges are going to make that final determination. Do these facts match with the law that is being applied here and make a judgment? I note then that the scripture teaches a distinction, but not a separation of church and state. There are judges, there are kings, there are Levites, there are priests. They're not the same, but they work together, don't they? That's how God intends it. They cooperate together in bringing God's kingdom on the earth. They're cooperative jurisdictions. They have the same law. They have the same lawgiver. But they have different means to accomplish and different powers to accomplish the same ends. Both point toward the kingdom of God. One with the sword of civil justice to hack men in pieces for their evil. And one with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in the preaching and excommunication and discipline of the church. But both point toward the same end. Let us reject then the Anabaptist idea that the church and the state are separate, never to be reconciled, never to cooperate. The Anabaptist said that the state is a necessary evil and that those who are believers should not cooperate or work within the state. No, they should stay separate from the state. Is that what the Bible says? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. God has both jurisdictions under his authority, and he intends for them to work together. And when you establish a separation of church and state, listen carefully, you get a secular state, a godless state, like we have in our day. Because we have a separation of church and state, guess what? No God no law, don't talk to me, you Levites and priests. I don't want to hear from God. I want to hear the voice of my God, which is the people or the judges. No, God 
is the only God. We must listen to him. Let us then pray and work toward the end of this secular civil government, that it would be abolished in our land, that men would hate it. Let us inform our fellow citizens who think, oh, well, yeah, that's how it should be. Yeah, yeah. separation of church and state. What can I do? They want to worship the devil. Who cares? Let them set up a mosque. Let them set up their little temples. No, God says no such thing. Notice that these Levites and judges, they shall show thee, he says, the sentence of judgment. Not they're going to make up their own. This word show means to reveal. It's hidden from the lower courts. They didn't understand it. And so now it's revealed. How do they reveal it? From the law of God, he says. They will show you what the scriptures teach about your specific case. They'll show you what the Lord has determined. That's what they'll do. The sentence of the law, verse 11 tells us. Not their own ideas. Not what seems good to them, but the oracles of God in Scripture. And that's why he says, you shall not decline from their sentence. Verse 11. Thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee. Why? Because of their personal authority? No. That's Roman Catholicism. Because the Pope sits in the chair that rules, you must listen to everything he says out of that chair. Is that what God says? No. He says, they show you the sentence of the law. What does scripture say? God is speaking to you in the Bible. Would you like to hear the voice of God? Read the Bible out loud. You will hear the voice of God. He speaks to us in his word. And therefore, you cannot decline from what he says. You can't go to the left or to the right. You stay right in the path that he says. And that's why it was so serious. If you do presumptuously and you say, I don't need to listen to God. What does he say? Put him to death. That man shall die. A refusal to listen to this supreme court, you might say, armed with the Bible and not their own opinions. This is a capital offense in a just society. And then what? Verse 13. All the people shall hear and fear and do no more. Swift and just punishment of crimes conducts to a good end, doesn't it? You want people to be free and feel like they can do whatever they want? Don't punish evil and don't do it quickly. If you want people to be afraid to do evil, stamp it out right away. Swift justice, make sure it's just. You hear all the facts, you make sure it's correct. You have a proper number of witnesses. It's all lines up. Do it quickly. Swift justice. Godly justice. And then people say, ho, ho, I don't want to do that. Okay, if you murder and then you are put behind bars for a couple of days and let out on bail, does, do people feel like they shouldn't murder? No, they feel like, oh, I might get a slap on the wrist, especially, you know, if I'm black or something, I'll get out of jail like that. You know, they're gonna, white supremacy, yeah, you can't put me in jail. That's how our society is right now. And so men are emboldened to do evil. So I note then part of God's intention in swift and severe punishment of presumption is to defer further crimes. Now, if you kill the offender, they won't reoffend, right? That's one way you stop crime. And others will say, oh, I don't want to die. And so they might think twice when they're tempted to do evil. 
Verses 14 through 20 concerning the choice and duty of a king. Notice again, when they possess the land, verse 14, this is receive it by an inheritance. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee. Now this is the same with the judges from chapter 16. They chose their own judges. They would also choose their own king. They would elect their king. But it's not just your choice, verse 15 informs us, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. I have a choice and you have a choice and your choice must be made in subservience to mine. That's what he's saying. When you set a king over you, follow my rules. And these are his rules. First, not a stranger, but a brother. You must be a homeborn of your nation, not a foreigner, not an idolater. He will change, the Geneva Bible notes, the true religion into idolatry and bring you into slavery. What else? He shall not multiply horses. Now, a horse in their day was a weapon of offense, not generally of defense. Foot soldiers can defend. They can sit in their homes or in the walls of the cities. Soldiers go forth to war. So don't have a multiplication of offensive arms, in other words. We talk about this in early America as standing armies in times of peace. We don't want that. That's evil. Why? Because it leads to tyranny and civil idolatry and the worship of the state. Wait a second. Isn't that what we have in our day? Standing armies, worship of the state, civil idolatry, they all go together. That's why God says no. Moreover, he shall not cause the people to return to Egypt so that he can get these arms. Now this might be, you might call it an alliance. Let's become friends with Egypt because then I can get arms from him. Egypt who hates God. Egypt who is wicked and lawless. Egypt that you left and you should never turn back there, he says. You want to go back so that you can get more horses? He says, no, don't do that. Or it could be that you attack the Egyptians in vengeance for former wrongs. Don't do that either. In either case, don't rely on men. Don't rely on your offensive arms. What else? Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Now, one wife is the order of God's natural arrangement. The twain, he says, shall become one flesh. Just two become one. Not three, not four, not 17, not 1,283. One, two. That's it. Beyond that is called multiplying wives. And he says, don't do that. Why? that his heart turn not away. Now, this word apostasy means to turn and walk away. It's used of divorce in the Bible. When a person leaves the marital home, it's apostasy from the marriage. So apostasy from God is where you turn your heart away and you walk away from him. That's what happens with polygamy. Now, let me ask you, what happened to Solomon? Did he go down to Egypt to get horses? Yes. Did he have many wives? Yes. Did he multiply gold and silver? Yes. And that's another thing God says. Verse 17, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. How do kings get silver and gold? You think they do honest toil out in the mines, drawing up the minerals of the earth? No. 
How do kings get silver and gold? Spoil, plunder, and taxation. That's how they get their money. So why is God saying that they shouldn't greatly multiply? Well, it's because they're going to be forced to be rich, to spoil, to plunder, and to tax. And that's exactly what Solomon did as well. Do you remember the people complained about the heavy burden that Solomon put on them? And do you remember what his son Rehoboam said? My little finger shall be as thick as his loins. I'm going to crush you with heavier taxes, is what Rehoboam said. What do kings do with their gold and silver? Well, they certainly must have good intentions, right? Oh, we'll do all these great things, won't we? We'll build all kinds of works for you. We'll employ your sons and your daughters. Oh, won't this be great? No, this is tyranny. And all these things that he's saying about a king is to say, do not elect a tyrant. Do not elect one who wants to have standing armies in times of peace, entangling alliances with heathen nations, many wives, and he's a sex pervert ruled by his lust. His heart turns away from God. He multiplies through plunder, spoil, and taxation. What's the remedy? Well, he says, verse 18, he shall write him a copy of this law. Have you ever read that in the Bible? Write him. Talks about people doing things for themselves for their own benefit, or like they chose them a king, they chose with reference to themselves. He's to write this copy of God's law with respect to himself for his own use so that he may read it every single day, start by copying it, then read it every day, he says, And this is the law standing there before the priests, the Levites. They possess this book. They have it before their eyes. They regulate themselves in the temple according to this law. So you, king, he says, shall do likewise. Your king must be learned in the law of Almighty God, or else what? His heart will be lifted up above his brethren. He will be prideful. He will be tyrannical. He will be what we call peremptory. I'll do whatever I want. I don't care about what you say. Well, what's the remedy? The Bible. And the Bible learning. And the Bible being read by the magistrate so that he may fear the Lord and keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, God says, verse 19. Now, do you remember we were talking about the separation of church and state, how that's unlawful? Do you see why that's unlawful? Is God not the God of nations? Is he only the God of the church? That's absurd, isn't it? Is he he the God of the family? Yes. Is he the God of you individually? Yes. Is he the God of the church? Of course. Is he the God of the state? Yes, he is. And so the magistrate had to read the law of God, the scriptures, the word, and to know what should I do. Let us expect that our magistrates will rule by God's laws, not by mere human authority, not merely for what they say is the public good, but rather what is truly for the public good. 
for the glory of God and then for the good of their neighbor. Notice pride. His heart would be lifted up without the word of God. All of us are beset by pride. Even the humility of wicked people is prideful. Did you know that? All the monks of the foreign religions and of the papacy who are so humble are prideful. Why? Because humility means I submit to God. Did God tell you to do all your little works? Your voluntary humility that you engage in, as Paul calls it in Colossians 2. Does that please God? No. Did you make it up yourself? Yes. Is it humble to make up religion yourself? No, it's the worst kind of pride. So God says, read the word. Take it in. Seek to do it. That's the key to getting rid of pride. Let us then read the word of God each day. Let us meditate upon it. Let us lay it up in our memories. Let us practice it in our lives. That is the key to humility and to mortifying that pride that stays with us. And then note verse 20. Do we like national security? Do we like the prolonging of a form of government? Do we like a peaceful transition of power from the father to the son in this case? Well, how's that going to happen? He has to be a godly king. Do you remember our tax disease we looked at on Tuesday evening? Ezra 7.23 Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? There's going to be wrath if we don't do what God says. Let us seek for national tranquility, prosperity by obeying God. That's why our nation is in upheaval. That's why we have no peace in our streets. That's why we have all the plagues and curses that God sends against us. Why? Because we will not listen to him. We will do what we want. Would you like your little kingdom to prosper? Would you like to have your family in tranquility, prosperity, and peace? What must you do? What did the king have to do? Know the word of God. He wrote a copy of it for himself. Maybe you could do that. But at least read it every day. It's already been copied. It's been printed for you. Read it. Absorb it. Practice it and do it. And the Lord says, I will bless you. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But what? His delight is in the law of his God, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That's the blessed man. And thus far the explanation of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17.